Well, we are looking at the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, it's kind of a sobering for me to realize that this is going to be our last message in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll do something different the uh, last of the month. We're going to be sharing about great expectations on that Sunday. Uh, so turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 5, and we're looking this morning at verse 8. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. In uh, 32 years as a uh, preaching pastor, if people say there's something true about me, they'll say, George is a teacher. Uh, I hope uh, today that you don't hear George the teacher speak. Uh, I hope, given the topic that we're looking at today, uh, you hear the Spirit of God convicting your heart. Because if there's one thing I uh, have learned this last week in dealing with this passage and wrestling with this truth, is that there's a world of difference between understanding and truly seeing God. The text here says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know the desire of my heart this morning, and that is that we don't just learn uh, something about words today, words like pure, words like heart, we don't uh, just dig into phrases like seeing God. It's wonderful to get insight, but insight is not only what we need today. What we really desire, what we long for is to see Jesus. And some of us can have Jesus right in front of us and still not see. Some of us can be exposed to the light all of our life and not see. Some of us can come to Bible studies. We can come to worship services. Uh, where others can walk away and say, wasn't it great to experience Jesus today? And we have to admit, we didn't see anything. So God, enable us to see today. We want to see you. So reveal yourself to us through your word, uh, through your spirit, and through your people around us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's amazing what people do uh, to enjoy happiness. On July 12, 2004, uh, the Sheriff's Department, as well as the Coast Guard, were summoned uh, to the Florida Keys in Moreau County to Whale Harbor. Uh, they, uh, they learned there that there were some teenagers that had erected a tripod, and there was a young girl uh, who was fastened by hooks to the top of the tripod with her feet dangling down in the water below. So she was kind of kicking in the uh, waves below as the, her shoulders were pierced by these large hooks, and she was dangling there. When the policeman arrived and asked her what they were doing, they said, oh, we're just having fun. This is how we get our kicks. Uh, we inserted the hooks very professionally, these teenagers claimed, and there was hardly any blood flow whatsoever. We're going to take some pictures, we're going to put them on the web, and we uh, like to do this periodically because it's our way of finding happiness. Now, maybe I'm too old. You know, you hear something like that and you say, the knuckleheads, what are they thinking? What, what ends are we going to go to to find what we think is happiness and joy? Obviously, one conclusion we have to draw when we hear that people are doing things like that to find joy, happiness must be hard to find if we're going to look for it in a place like that. And it makes me wonder, not just as a theologian, but more importantly, as a human being, what do we do with a statement like Jesus said? Happy are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. Now, on Sunday morning, that sounds like a phrase we ought to examine. But uh, obviously on a Tuesday afternoon in Whale Harbor are some teenagers who aren't buying it. Uh, They're finding happiness someplace else. And you can even wonder for us as we think about a phrase like that, what does that phrase do for you and for me on a Tuesday afternoon? Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think we like the last part of the statement. Uh, If it were possible somehow for people across the world to know with certainty that they could see God, you think they'd be interested? I think therein lies the rub for a lot of people. They're convinced they can't see God. They've tried to see God. Maybe they prayed and asked God to show up somehow, and they would claim he didn't. Or maybe they've been to church, and they find church oh so boring and not worth their time. Or they've been around Christians, and they don't see anything about them that impresses them with Christians or Christianity. So if it were possible that there was a God of the universe who somehow might show up, I've got to believe most people would say, well, I'd like to see that. I'd like to be around. If, if this Jesus you say you worship shows up on a Sunday morning, I, I'd like to be there to see that. But I doubt that it's going to happen. It's not happened for me. So, again, we look at this phrase of Jesus of Nazareth. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we say, well, if this is true, this is some of the best news that we have ever heard as human beings and certainly as Christians. But what does it mean? I'd uh, like us to explore just a couple of questions uh, today. The first is, um, what does the, uh, uh, the first part of this phrase, happy are the pure in heart, what is that really all about? What does that mean? And then, given that, since this qualifies who sees God, how is it that the uh, pure in heart actually see God? Well, a couple of definitions. We're not going to spend a lot of time uh, with this, but the word pure uh, is a Greek word, katharos. Uh, perhaps you can hear our English word cathartic in it. Uh, when we have a cathartic experience, it's an experience that cleanses us, something that uh, makes us feel good in a, in a way. This word katharos uh, is a word that means unmixed. Uh, it means to be sincere. Uh, it means to be focused. Uh, so uh, as it's used in relation to a, a heart, we're talking about the individual who's singularly focused. And you say, singularly focused on what? Well, obviously, singularly focused on what matters to God. I mean, that's the uh, clear implication. Now, clearly, we can be sincere about a whole lot of other things. Um, We can be singularly focused about a whole lot of other things, like the uh, South Korean man who died after playing 50 hours of the video game StarCraft. Uh, He uh, had lost his job, uh, and guess for what reason? playing video games at work. So he lost his job, and then to console himself, uh, he went to an Internet cafe and started playing the game StarCraft, played it for 50 hours straight, only went to the bathroom. You know, didn't eat, didn't do anything. 50 hours straight he played uh, StarCraft. And then at the end of 50 hours, he collapsed in front of the screen. He was rushed to the hospital, uh, and he died in the hospital as the... uh, Examiners uh, tried to determine a cause of death. They decided that he died because of exhaustion for playing the video game StarCraft too many hours in a row. And you think, well, it's one thing to be singularly focused. It's one thing to be obsessed. It's one thing to be sincere about something. But let's be sincere about the right thing. Uh, certainly not the, uh, the wrong, wrong thing. 
So what do we need to be singularly focused about? Well, once we come to Christ, the Bible indicates that a process begins. Our sins have been forgiven. We are justified, taking that technical theological term. Uh, uh, it was used in the court system of the New Testament time uh, where uh, it's a forensic term that means you are declared innocent, even though we all know you're guilty. You're still filled with sin, but you're declared innocent before God. Now a process begins called sanctification. Uh, that process for the believer is supposed to be that day by day you're becoming more pure. Day by day, you're becoming more holy, more set apart. That's what's supposed to happen in the Christian life and experience. And obviously, it doesn't always happen because we aren't always pure in heart. We don't realize that's what we're supposed to be experiencing. Uh, we don't have the attitude of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was a baseball player uh, turned evangelist. And this is what he said about the uh, purification process for him. Listen, I'm against sin. I'll kick at it as long as I've got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. Now, there's a man uh, who wanted to experience sanctification, and he realized that the root for that is by taking seriously what it means to be clean or pure in heart. And why purity of heart? Going to the second word. Uh, the uh, second word, heart, uh, is the Greek word cardia. We certainly can see that in a lot of uh, English uh, words. Bob Hope uh, expressed a concern about the heart this way. If you haven't got charity in your heart, you've got the worst kind of heart trouble. Well, that's, uh, that's part of it. As we think about our English word heart, uh, we can say that heart is the organ in us. Uh, we can say the uh, heart is a kind of a place where we feel things for one another. Uh, like uh, Tony Bennett, I left my heart in San Francisco. But if we look at this English word heart, it doesn't convey everything that the Greek word does. Because at the time of Jesus Christ in his world and clearly in Jesus' own mind, heart meant something more than all of that. Uh, probably we can guess, best get an understanding of Jesus' understanding about the meaning of the word heart by looking at what Jesus says recorded in Matthew 15, uh, Matthew 15, verses eight, 18 and 19. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. So the unique thing about the, the New Testament and about Jesus' perspective, uh, is the heart is the center of all things evil in us. Now, already we have a problem. Uh, there's a mindset across the world that the way to take care of uh, the problems of society is through education. Well, you can have some highly educated people who, in biblical terms, still have heart trouble. You have somebody who has got all the best training in the world. And still can do some pretty foolish, stupid things. And, of course, I don't even have to give examples of this. We, uh, we can see the examples all around us and in the church. You can have people who know the Bible inside out. They've got all the knowledge about Scripture. But they still have a fundamental heart problem. Uh, and because of that, find themselves invariably getting into difficulty. So Jesus Christ uh, starts where we must start and, and says, The essential truth, if you're going to see God is not knowing a lot of stuff in your head, but having purity 
uh, in your heart. Jazz uh, saxophonist Charlie Parker uh, suggested uh, how this being pure in heart affects happiness by saying, if you don't live it, it won't come out of your horn. That's the idea that uh, Jesus is, uh, is getting at. Uh, in his autobiography, Time, uh, Time Bends, Arthur Miller tells of his marriage to Marilyn Monroe. And he suggests that there was a time uh, during the, uh, the filming of the movie, I thought I could remember, Misfits, of course. During the filming of the movie Misfits, uh, that Marilyn Monroe was uh, particularly depressed. She was taking a number of barbiturates, uh, struggling with mental attitude. And during that time, Arthur Miller said he stood by her bedside on one occasion and he wanted to do something for his wife. Uh, and, he, uh, and he says it uh, this way. I found myself straining to imagine miracles. What if she were able to wake and I were able to say, God loves you, darling. And she were able to believe it. How I wished I still had my religion and she hers. Therein lies the problem. There's so much in life that can discourage us and dishearten us. And if we don't know the way to happiness, the real way to happiness, uh, we can find ourselves saying, well, I, I wish somehow I could see God. Uh, I wish somehow God would show up. And then see your loved one troubled before you, realizing since I don't believe God can show up, there's nothing I can do. And so Jesus is telling us the truth. Uh, if we really want to experience the kind of happiness that is eternal, we better understand what it means to be pure in heart, because it's the pure in heart only that are the ones that are really going to see God. Well, let's uh, shift it and ask ourselves a little bit more about what is this seeing God is, uh, is all about? Uh, what is it that keeps us uh, from seeing God? Well, obviously, there are a lot of people who don't see God. Uh, one of the foremost authorities on atheism in the world today is Dr. Richard Dawkins, uh, the uh, eminent scientist from Oxford. Uh, he is anti-Catholic and anti-Christian, uh, very pro-macro-evolution. Uh, in his book, River Out of Eden, he writes, The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Skeptic Magazine interviewed Dawkins and asked him if his perspective was the same as Shakespeare's in Macbeth, that life is a tale told by an idiot filled with sound and fury, signifying nothing. To which Dawkins said, yes, at, at a sort of cosmic level it is. But what I want to guard against is people therefore getting nihilistic in their personal lives. I don't see any reason for that at all. You can have a very happy and fulfilled personal life, even if you think that the universe at large is a tale told by an idiot. Do you buy that? So I, I believe at its root uh, that the whole world is just an idiotic tale. It is nihilistic philosophically. It's nothing leading to nothingness. I mean, that, that's the philosophy that stands behind that. And somehow I'm going to find joy and happiness knowing that I'm heading nowhere, and so are you. And when we face any kind of problems or difficulties, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing I can do. I'm going to find happiness in the midst of that somehow. Recognizing there's no purpose. There's no way to get satisfaction. Uh, there's no answers to the great dilemmas of life. I'm going to find happiness. You say, good luck with that one. But uh, that kind of spiritual blindness can bring us to the point where we say, well, I don't see any God around. I don't see any evidence of 
of God. Foundationally, at the root of what keeps us from seeing God, however, would be sin. And more specifically in Scripture, uh, two phrases that I see that have everything to do with our seeing God or not seeing God. Uh, one phrase is found in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, where the Apostle Paul is talking about those who are Christians, uh, who, as he puts it, are seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So he's saying we've got a conscience. Now, a conscience literally is the Greek word knowing with. You say knowing with whom? Well, it's knowing with God. So conscience literally uh, is knowing the same things that God knows. Uh, that's the idea behind it. So what's conscience all about? Well, my conscience is uh, that means whereby God tells me his thoughts. And we can sense it when uh, we're doing something that, you know, God wants us to recognize is wrong. And there's uh, the red lights that begin to flash and the sirens sound. And God is trying to get your attention saying, mayday, 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 wake up now. And God will continue to do that uh, to help us. But what the Apostle Paul says is that it's possible for us to get to the point where we get those warning signals over and over and over again and we ignore them. And we ignore them. And we get to the point where our conscience, you know, that part of us that is attuned to listen to God becomes seared. They don't want to hear the warning signs anymore. Uh, the uh, second uh, phrase uh, that speaks to this uh, same phenomena uh, is in Ephesians chapter 4 in verses 8 and 19. Now the Apostle Paul says, because of the hardness of their heart, they have become callous. So, again, point being, God has made us in such a way uh, that our hearts are in tune with him. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11 says, God has put eternity in your heart and in mine so that there is an eternal sense of a need for God. But we can come to the point as Christians where our hearts are no longer soft because we keep resisting that prompting of God that tells us we should listen. Uh, we do that long enough, we get a hardened heart, and we don't hear anything from God anymore. And the Apostle Paul basically saying, woe to those uh, Christians with seared conscience and hardened hearts, uh, as God has been trying to get your attention, he's been trying to speak to you, and you've been resisting and resisting and resisting to the point where your heart is hardened now, and you don't hear. Now, I, I need to add as a footnote, that's not a permanent condition. The Apostle Paul does tell us uh, in Ephesians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5 that you can quench the Spirit, but you can also revive the Spirit as you confess sin, as you turn to God. And you, you start by saying, I haven't been hearing God lately. If I'm supposed to be able to see God if I'm pure in heart, why well, haven't been seeing God anywhere? If you have to admit today that's your condition, well, let me tell you biblically then, you've got a seared conscience and a hardened heart. Because I take Jesus at his word, and Jesus says, if you're pure in heart, you will see me. Therefore, if you're not seeing him, there's got to be something wrong with your heart. And what you then need to do is just to confess and say, oh, dear God, I know I know you want me to see you. I know you want me to experience you. God, help me to see what it is that I'm not seeing. Show me the sin in my life that's keeping me from you so that I can experience you and see you, because that's what God wants for all of us. Now, we make a transition from those things that keep us from seeing God. And we can then ask, well, then what is it that enables us? Uh, to see God. Um, first, a brief comment on the meaning of the word. There are a number of words in the uh, Greek New Testament for see. Uh, the Greek word blepo is to open your eyes and you see something in front of you. I see my hand. That's not the word that appears here. Uh, the word that appears here is the Greek word horao, which means to perceive something, uh, to understand something. So Jesus Christ 
is not saying in this uh, beatitude, blessed are those uh, who wake up every day and there's God the Father right in front of you. You see him in your room. Uh, What he's saying is blessed are those who are pure in heart because they're going to perceive the presence of God. Uh, They're going to understand the presence of uh, of God in a a unique way. Um, It was uh, A.W. Tozer uh, who said this. Religious instruction, however sound, is not enough by itself. It brings light, but it cannot impart sight. The assumption that light and sight are synonymous has brought spiritual tragedy to millions. The Pharisees looked straight at the light of the world for three years, but not one ray of light reached their inner beings. Light is not enough. The inward operation of the Holy Spirit is necessary to saving faith. The gospel is light, but only the Spirit can give sight. That's what Jesus is getting at. We can, we can get all the instruction in the world, but if we don't have the, uh, the insight that the Spirit gives, we're not going to be able to see uh, God. What's the secret of spiritual insight? C.S. Lewis uh, made this statement. We're afraid that heaven is a bribe, some of us. And if we make, make it our goal, then we'll no longer be disinterested. It's not so. Heaven offers nothing that a mercenary soul can desire. It's safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God, for only the pure in heart want to. Uh, What C.S. Lewis is uh, suggesting here is that if we come to the point we say, I really, really want to see God. Well, guess what? God really, really wants you to see him. And so you will. That's the way it works. To the uh, last points I want to make this morning then. Well, okay, if we're pure in heart, how is it that we can expect to see God? Well, the scripture tells us that one way we can expect to see God uh, is in nature. I mean, you see this throughout scripture. Psalm 19 is one of the best known passages. The heavens declare the glory of God. So as we go outside, if we're pure in heart, not everyone's going to see this. If we're pure in heart, we will see God. Now, I, I didn't used to think of David Letterman as an apologist uh, for Christianity, but uh, I'd like to suggest that maybe he is. Uh, if you watch David Letterman, maybe you remember that little stupid segment, Will It Float, where he and Paul Schaefer uh, throw these objects like a lawn chair or a toaster or something, you know, into this pool of water, and they'll see if it's going to float, and they'll make the predictions. Do you think it's going to float? Now, uh, the premise behind this is that we ought to be able to look at objects based on their density, and make a prediction, if you throw them in water, either they're going to float or they're going to sink. One of the things that has never come up yet on David Letterman uh, is the principle of water itself. Because water defies human logic. It doesn't function according to the laws of physics. Uh, It doesn't work the way evolutionary theory says it should work. Because anyone who knows the first thing about physics knows that as you expand, as you heat molecules, they expand. That's just what happens. So hot air, those expanded molecules are going to rise to the top. What's supposed to happen with hot water? It's going to rise to the top because the molecules expand. They get wider apart and they're going to rise to the top because they're less dense. Well, at four degrees centigrade, all of a sudden, for some unknown scientific reason, Cold water rises to the top, not hot water. And you say, well, wait a minute. That's not supposed to happen. Because as objects become uh, more heated, the molecules are supposed to get farther apart. 
which should make them less dense, which means it's going to rise to the top. So cold water should always be at the bottom. But as you look at the waters in the Arctic regions or look at the waters in the Great Lakes or any lake that freezes, there is a phenomena of nature that is inexplicable. When you get to 4 degrees centigrade, the cold water rises to the top, and so lakes freeze from the top down, oceans freeze from the top down. You say, well, what kind of sense does that make? Well, no sense at all. Unless you're the God of the universe and you're the creator of it all and you've got the fish life uh, and vegetation life uh, in lakes and oceans that you want to preserve because you created it. So you're going to break the laws of nature because you're the creator. You can do that. And you can do something that defies logic. Point being, uh, that as the people with pure and higher go out and look at God's creation, they're going to be able to see God in it because they've got a purity of heart. And it should be obvious uh, to those of us pure in heart as we open our eyes and see. Now, the second way, Scripture says, uh, that we're going to see God is that we're going to see God in his word. Jesus Christ, who gives us this beatitude, uh, himself tells us what we should expect. He says in John 14 through 16, as he's leaving his uh, disciples, I'm not going to leave you comfortless, but I'm going to send you a paraclete, the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God is going to guide you into all truth. You say, how's that supposed to work? Well, the way that's supposed to work is as you're reading Scripture, if you're pure in heart, the Spirit of God is going to speak to you and say, that's right, that's right. No, that's wrong. As you're in a worship service uh, and someone is uh, speaking, uh, if you're pure in heart, uh, the Spirit of God is going to say to you, well, you know what George just said there? That was right. What he just said there? Eh, you know, forget that. Uh, but the Spirit of God is going to guide you to the truth. If you're in a Bible study or in a Sunday school class or some other setting, if you're pure in heart, the Spirit of God is going to direct you so that you know the truth of God. Look at uh, John's uh, teaching in 1 John. He uh, suggests this throughout uh, 1 John uh, as well. Another way that we're going to see God if we're pure in heart is in his people. You say, how's that work? Well, the Bible tells us uh, that if we are Christian, we are born from above, John uh, chapter 3, and the spiritual rebirth is the spirit of the living God, the spirit of Jesus coming down from heaven and residing in us. So now we should be able to see Christ in one another because we have Christ in us, like the little girl, Brittany, who just prayed to receive uh, Jesus Christ, and she was trying to understand this phenomena of Jesus Christ in her. So she said to her mommy, uh, Mommy, if I write a letter to Jesus and then I eat it and it gets on my tummy, can he read it? Well, it's uh, kind of that sort of concept. If Christ is indeed in us, we ought to be able to look at fellow Christians and say there's something distinctive about that person that is Jesus in them. And, of course, it's really obvious if someone has just come to Christ or someone has experienced some spiritual victory and they're real different now than what they were before because we prayed for them and the Spirit of Christ has, has come in somehow and they're transformed. We can say, well, that's not you. That's Jesus in you. So we should expect as we uh, look around. I've done this with the staff a number of occasions as we've asked the question, how you experience Jesus? Uh, quite a few of our staff will make this very statement. The way I most experience Jesus is when I look at the people in the church and I see God working in their lives. Well, we ought to be able to see it that way. There's a uh, fourth way we can see God. Uh, we can see God as we pray. And it seems to me there are two phenomena uh, here. Uh, the, the first is, uh, throughout Scripture, we are reminded that when we pray, God wants to speak to you. Uh, I've said this a number of occasions. It took me a while to get that straight. 
in my own feeble thinking, I thought just God wanted to hear from me when I prayed, that I didn't need to hear from him. Um, it transforms your prayer life, or at least it did mine, when you get to the point where as you're praying, you say, oh, dear God, speak to me. God, help me to see if there's a sin in my life you want me to confess. Show it to me, Lord, and then listen. See what God says. Uh, I've even done this as I've come before God uh, during times when I wanted to praise him. I, I think I've shared this in the past. I, I used to use uh, categories in systematic theology you know, for my praise sections. God, I praise you that you're omniscient, praise you that you're omnipotent. You, know, you go through all those categories of the immutable character of God and the moral character, I mean, that kind of stuff. And then you do that so many times, and you feel, well, how many times can you go through the list? Uh, so I found that it's even more meaningful to say, Lord, how do you want me to praise you today? How do you want me to praise you today? And then listen. And if you listen, I believe, or at least he does this for me, that God speaks and he will tell you how it is that he wants you to pray. So as you pray, expect that God wants to speak to you. Uh, The second obvious thing is uh, that as we pray, since we're getting in touch with the God of the universe who created everything, uh, who is all powerful, we should expect that God's going to show up as we pray. There's going to be power for us as Christians as we pray. I would have shared this story probably about 13 years ago, so it's a repeat for some of you who were here 13 years ago. The rest of you, it ought to be new. My very first prayer like this, this a power prayer, uh, was for Greg Christensen. Greg was one of my uh, uh, classmates at Concordia Lutheran Junior College in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, most of you know I came to Christ while studying for the ministry and then was a resident director in a dorm and anxious for all the guys in my dorm to come to know Christ. And one by one, they all committed their life to Christ by the end of the year. Well, Greg was one of the first ones to pray to receive Christ. After he prayed to receive Christ, uh, he asked me if I would help him with his car. He had a 1960 Rambler American stick shift model. He was driving to Detroit, and the car broke down. You know, the clutch went out on it. And so he had it towed to his uh, aunt and uncle's place uh, in, uh, in Detroit. And he said, George, I don't know the first thing about cars uh, you do. Uh, I don't have any money, you know, what college student does. You suppose you can help me fix this car? Well, I've done some clutch jobs in the past. So another friend of mine, uh, Jay Kittenbrink, who also had just come to Christ. We're all brand-new Christians. I was the veteran Christian. I've been a Christian for three months and the leader of the group. Um, And these other two guys have been Christians for a month, basically. So we're off to Detroit uh, together. I get underneath this uh, Rambler American and to take the makeshift tools that Greg's uncles had, because I didn't have any of my tools with me. They're back in Flint. And doing a transmission job, as you all know, first thing you have to do is take the drive shaft off, disconnect it from the transmission. I'm, I'm kind of pulling you really, but that is the first thing you do. Took that off. There's no problem with that. Got the drive shaft on the, on the ground. Next thing you got to do is take down the transmission. And uh, most transmissions have got transmission bolts on the back, holding the back part of the transmission up, because... Transmissions can be heavy, so it can be over 100 pounds. So they got these mounting brackets in the back. So I was taking down the mounting bracket, and I got on the one side trying to take the bolts out, and the bolt was just spinning up through the chassis. And I uh, looked at that bolt, looked at Greg and Jay, and realized I don't know what to do. If it's spinning around, I don't know what to do. And I, you know, you try heat. You know, if nothing else works. You heat it, and maybe that'll help. And that didn't make any difference. So it just kept spinning around. Uh, it was around 7 o'clock. Uh, normally, if I'm going to do a job, as Joan will attest, I'll stay up till 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, banging and rattling if I need to until the job is done. But at 7 o'clock, as far as I was concerned, I was done because I'd tried everything, and that bolt was not coming out. So I told the guys, I think we're done for the night. Let me think on it. Uh, so I went in the house, and I began thinking, and I was laying down, and when I get depressed, I sleep. So I just fell asleep. Greg and Jay saw me sleeping, so they went to a movie. 
I went out to the movie the other night. They came back. I don't know when they got uh, in. But I was up the next morning, and all of a sudden, now I, I'm, a, I'm about a three-month-old Christian. I have never asked God for anything like this in my life before. I didn't know we could. And finally it occurred to me, you suppose you can pray about something like a 1960 Rambler American? And let me tell you, if you own a 1960 Rambler American, you better be praying a lot. And I finally go, well, why not? I mean, the Bible seems to say we're supposed to be able to pray about all these kinds of things. So I got the guys up. We went out to the Rambler America. We literally laid hands. I didn't know what else to do because there's no, there's no guideline for how do you pray for Rambler America. So we laid hands on the, on the car. And we prayed that God would do a miracle in this car, that we would be able to get those bolts out uh, so we could get the transmission out. And then uh, I thought while we were praying, well, I was just throwing a few extra things. Greg didn't have any money. So I said, well, Lord, help us to be able to fix this uh, clutch for not very much money because he didn't have much money. I thought, what the heck, we're going to be praying. Might as well throw that in too. Uh, so uh, we, we prayed that as, uh, as well. And I also said, tomorrow's my birthday. I want to go home and be with my family. I met this young girl by the name of Joan Kennedy that I want to spend a little time with, and I was hoping to be able to do that. So I thought, why not throw that in too? So, you know, we, uh, we prayed about that. Literally, after we prayed that prayer, I got underneath the car with the same wrench, and that's what I had in have a socket set, the same wrench I'd had before. Went to the same bolt, started turning the bolt, came out uh, slowly, but it came out. And then the next one, and then the next one, the brace fell down, uh, pulled the, uh, the transmission back, got to the clutch assembly, got that apart. And then I'm in Detroit. I'm from Flint. I didn't know much about car places in Detroit, and neither did Greg and Jay. So we went in the house, got the uncle's phone book, went down the phone book. I had no idea where anything was. Went down the phone book, let's call this place. So I, I called them up and said, do you have a... A clutch disc for a 1960 Rambler American? Oh, yeah, we do. How much? $3.50. You're kidding. I was so excited when they told me it was $3.50, I didn't even bother to ask them uh, if they had a spline gear for the transmission. For those of you who don't know about doing clutch jobs, uh, transmission's got a big gear in the front of it, and since the transmission can weigh over 100 pounds, you've got to get that gear lined up with the clutch disc, and either you're going to hold up a 150- or 120-pound transmission with your arm where you're trying to adjust this thing, or you get a, a transmission mount, which we didn't have, or you get the spline gear, which weighs about a pound. And what we needed then was a transmission for a 1960 Rambler American that was used, that was uh, in the back lot, that was out of the car, that was apart, so the spline gear would be available. That's what we needed. And, of course... You know, I'm thinking about this. I was driving away, realizing I forgot to ask about the spline gear. And then thinking, you know, I wonder how many, you know, used cars they got in their back lot and how many Ramblers do they have and how many transmissions from the Ramblers are out and how many of those transmissions are apart and how many spline gears are laying loose. We pulled up to the place. They had 10 cars in their back lot, 10. And my heart sank. We're in trouble now. And I didn't want to tell the other two guys. But we went in and I asked, do you have a spline gear for a 1960 uh, Rambler America? Oh, yeah. I got it right here. Went to the back, just, I mean, like two seconds, pulled it out. And then I held my breath and said, how much will that be? Well, just give me 50 cents now, and when you come back, bring the spine gear. I'll give you your 50 cents back. We went back uh, to uh, the aunt and uncle's place uh, with the clutch disc and the spine gear, and we had that car back together by noon. So basically did the entire clutch job from around 8 in the morning till noon, uh, the car was adjusted, it was running great, everything was done, and it cost Greg $3.50. I had asked to be able to go home the next day to see uh, Joan and my, my family. I went home at noon uh, the day earlier. 
And God demonstrated something to me in that experience. He hasn't answered all my prayers as graphically as that, but a lot of them he has. Uh, And what I know to be true about prayer is that when people who are pure in heart come before God and they pray sincerely and say, God, I want you to speak to me. First, I want you to purify my heart, make me right before you. And then, God, I ask uh, that you demonstrate your power in my life. You pray that way and God will do that. One last way we see God. Uh, We see God in Jesus. In John chapter 1 and verse 18, we find that John makes this uh, statement about God. No man has ever seen God. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, exegetes him. That's the word that appears. Exegesis is that process that preachers go through where they draw out the meaning of the Bible. Maybe you've heard people use the word exegesis before. If you haven't, uh, you learned something today. But Jesus exegetes God the Father. He helps us see God the Father. Because no one has seen God the Father. But we can see God the Father when we see Jesus. Last point today. We're about to experience the Lord's Supper. There has been a debate in Christendom uh, since the uh, first century. What do we experience when we experience the Lord's Supper? Is it transubstantiation uh, that the elements actually become the very body and blood of Jesus Christ when the priest prays and the bell is rung? Uh, Is that what happens? Or is it consubstantiation, what Luther said, uh, that the uh, elements... Uh, are in and with, the, or the, the body of Jesus Christ is in and with the elements, and so Jesus is present that way. Or is it what John Calvin said? We don't know that it's transubstantiation, don't know that it's consubstantiation. What we know is Jesus Christ is present. That was Calvin's view. As a former Missouri Synod Lutheran, I take a kind of simplistic approach to this and say, what did Jesus say? Uh, what Jesus said is where two or three are gathered together in my name, There I am in the midst. So is Jesus present today? According to him, he is. And you know what? That's all I need to know. I don't need to know if it's in and with. I don't need to know that it's transubstantial. I don't need to know any of that. I just know he's present. Uh, And then I can say, well, who of us are going to see him today? Well, according to Jesus, those of us who are pure in heart, we're the ones that's going to see. The good news that I have for you is as we experience Uh, the Lord's Supper, we get to see Jesus. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to pray, oh God, help me see today? I want to see Jesus. Help me to understand the significance of who Jesus Christ is. Help me to see anew the the meaning of his death and his resurrection. Help me understand how to take that next step in my own sanctification process that my heart might be purer today than it was yesterday, purer tomorrow than it is today, that I might be coming more like Jesus day by day. And I know the way that happens is when I see Jesus and I long to be like him. You ready to pray that as we take the Lord's Supper today? I hope so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the profound truth that you've given us in your word that it's possible to see God. But only for those of us who are pure in heart, Father, I don't know if we have people in the congregation today uh, who would have to say that their conscience has been seared or their heart has been hardened. God, I've got to believe every one of us here wants to see you. And so, Father, for those of us who may have hardened our hearts or our conscience have become seared somehow, uh, God, lead us uh, to the realization of that, uh, that that's, that's what's happened to us. And then, Father, convince us that if we come before you and we confess our sin and we cry out to you, uh, that you long for us to see you. You long for us to experience forgiveness. So, God, as we enter into the worship of the Lord's Supper, may we experience that now. And then, Father, for those of us who are pure in heart today, make us more pure in heart tomorrow and more pure in heart the next day. 
God, we want to see you uh, in nature. We want to see you in your word. We want to see you in the people around us. We want to see you as we pray. We want to see you in Jesus. So, dear God, reveal yourself to us now, for Jesus' sake. Amen.